grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. As a parent of little ones, I spend a lot of my time repeating the same things. I think that's really what mostly parenting mostly is. You, you say the same things over and over and over, and then they grow up and move out. And then I guess you just call them and say the same things over and over and over. Uh, here's some of the things, for example, my wife and I find ourselves saying a lot. Wash your hands with soap. <laughs> Don't put that in your mouth. Okay, now go wash your hands. Cover your mouth when you cough. Okay, now go wash your hands. Look both ways before you cross the street, and then when you get inside, please wash your hands. <laughs> They're small things, but, but things that they need to know. We also spend a lot of time reminding them of the big things, like who God is and what his word says and who they are and what life's about, and how to be respectful and obey and work hard and, and lots of other important life skills and values. Here's why we have to keep reminding them over and over again. Because they forget over and over again. My three-year-old will still walk into the house with hands covered in dirt and who knows what else and pick up a snack he found under the couch from last week and just start eating it. <laughs> That's how you build a good immune system, by the way. But, but my kids, they're, they're quick to forget, so we're quick to remind them. And you know, we as adults really aren't much better. <laughs> now, hopefully, we've learned by now to wash our hands. But I'll be the first to admit how forgetful I am. Uh, my keys, my wallet, my phone, passwords. Passwords are the worst. Anybody else struggle with that? Like all the usernames and passwords you have to remember? Then there are much more other important things that we tend to forget, like truths about God and his word. I've noticed this in my own life. I may know something to be true. I may believe it to be true. But then I make choices that say otherwise. But when we forget biblical truth, it has disastrous consequences in our lives. And that's what I want us to see as we continue walking this morning through the book of Exodus. God's people, the Israelites, have been through a lot. They spent four centuries as slaves in Egypt. But because of the covenant that God made with the father of their faith, a man named Abraham, God heard their cries and rescued them. Through ten plagues, God brought judgment on Egypt and deliverance for his people. Even as Pharaoh and his army pursued them, God parted the Red Sea and brought them through on dry land. And at this point in history, Israel has experienced the most incredible display of God's power ever witnessed by mankind. And yet their story is just beginning. Their deliverance from Egypt established them as a nation, but they're still learning what it means to be God's people. So Moses is now taking them to Mount Sinai, where they will meet God and hear from them. And today, we're going to see what happens to them on the way there and how God continues to reveal himself to his people. Look with me at Exodus chapter 15, all the way at the end. Let's start in verses 22 to 27. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. 
And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the first of three stories we're going to look at this morning that are right in a row, and they're all very similar. Each time we will see that God's people find themselves in need. They complain to Moses, and God provides for them. Here in the first story, the people are now three days into their journey in the wilderness, and they've not had any water. Let's acknowledge that this was a very serious problem. These people were traveling through the desert. It was hot, and they were likely carrying a lot of supplies and babies and animals. I think you and I would be struggling too after three days of walking with no water. But with what we've seen in this story so far in mind, we can also acknowledge that this is a bit ridiculous. It's been three days since the miraculous Red Sea event. That means three days ago, the Israelites watched God supernaturally part a body of water. And ironically, they now complain about water. They've already forgotten how radically God is able to provide for them. So they go to Moses and they grumble. And this complaining is going to be a common theme. Moses had a very tough job. Remember, he's leading about two million people through the desert. And as the leader, he often becomes the target of their concerns. Moses does what the people should have done. He cries out to God for help. God provides a log. Moses throws it in the water, and the bitter water turns sweet. Crisis averted. And God uses this opportunity to teach Israel a lesson. Look at the second half of verse 25. It says, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. Essentially, he says, if you'll just listen to me, And trust me and follow my ways. I'm going to protect you guys. I'm not going to let that happen to you, what happened to the Egyptians. But I'm going to be your God and your healer. We also see in verse 25 that God used this situation to test the Israelites. Now this word test is not like a pass or fail kind of thing. God was not trying to see whether Israel really trusted him or not. He knew they were going to struggle. Rather, this word test means to refine or grow. God is using this situation to teach the Israelites to trust him more. And right after this, he proves himself by bringing them to a place of palm trees and springs of water. Let's look now at the second story in this three-story series where Israel again finds themselves in need. Look at Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Here we go again. People are now one month removed from Egypt, a few weeks removed from being uh, miraculously given water to drink. And now it's hunger. Again, a legitimate need. Food is very important, especially if you're traveling by foot through the desert. But it's the specific complaint that is so egregious here. 
The people grumble again to Moses and they say, man, back in Egypt, we had all kinds of bread and meat, everything we wanted. We could have died happy back there with full bellies. Now you brought us out to this wilderness to starve us. Did you remember that these guys were slaves in Egypt? Maybe they had food, but they were being worked to death. And they've already forgotten how bad things were. They've already forgotten what God can do. Their immediate need has clouded their minds of God's past record of faithfulness. So how does God respond this time? God tells Moses that in the morning he will give the people bread from heaven, which is called manna. And at night he will give them quail. This is how he would feed his people while they traveled. But there were some special instructions. Chapter 16, jump down with me to verses 13 to 21. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. The focus here on this story is on the manna. It becomes the definitive sign that God will continue to take care of his children in their wilderness travels. Every morning when they wake up, the dew gives way to the manna. It's a thin, flaky bread that they never seen before. In fact, manna gets its name because it sounds in Hebrew like the question, what is it? And here are the instructions that God gives. He says, every morning, take the amount you need, one omer per person, which was a measurement back then. And each person would end up with exactly what they needed for that particular day. But here was the key. They could not try and save extra for tomorrow. If they did, it would rot. Now, what's, what's the deal with that? Why couldn't they just, you know, pack a little bit away for a rainy day? Because the point of manna was to teach the Israelites to trust God every single day. They had to go to bed every night with an empty cupboard, believing that God would provide for them again tomorrow. To try and keep some manna just in case demonstrated that they didn't really trust in God's care for them. So this was their morning ritual. Every day, every morning, they go out, they gather except for one day of the week. Look at verses 22 to 26. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Here is the ultimate call to trust. 
Every morning, the people go out, they gather what they need for the day, except on the sixth day, they had to gather enough for two days. And they had to trust that what they gathered would be enough to make it and that the food wouldn't spoil this time. Because on the seventh day, there wouldn't be any manna out on the ground. And they were forbidden even from going out and looking for it. What was that about? Well, this is the first time that God introduces a very important rhythm in the life of his people. It's called the Sabbath, or what Jewish people today call Shabbat. They still practice it to this day. We'll talk more about this when we get to the Ten Commandments, but simply put, Sabbath is a day of rest. The Sabbath was modeled after God's seventh day of creation when he rested. And ultimately, like the manna, it was a way to build into Israel's weekly rhythm and reinforce this truth, that Yahweh is the great provider. And with him on your side, you can do more in six days than you could do on your own in seven. So that seventh day became very important. It was a day of rest and dependence on God's provision. But we see in the next verses, what did the people do? They still went out on that seventh day looking for manna. They still didn't get it. In the final verses of chapter 16, we see God command Moses and Aaron to keep one omer of the manna. They put it in a jar and would later store it in the tabernacle. This was so the people had a constant reminder of God's care for them in this season. They would eat this stuff for the next 40 years in the desert as every single morning, every bite they took was a reminder that God is good and he takes care of his children. Now, you would think after bitter water made sweet, bread literally from heaven, that that would be enough to convince the Israelites that they would be okay. But alas, we have one more story in this section. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Here we go again. Back to the water problem. Again, the people are thirsty, and again they complain, and again Moses goes to God. And Moses says to God exactly what I say to him a lot about my own kids. What shall I do with this people? <laughs> They're ready to stone me. <laughs> and he's frustrated, and we can understand why. He just led them out of slavery. He performed all these amazing miracles with God's power, and he just can't seem the people to get the people to get it or to trust him or the Lord. But how does God respond? Once again, not with anger or with judgment, but with grace. God commands Moses to strike the rock, and out comes water for the people. 
And just so the people know how fed up Moses was, he named the place Masa and Meribah, which literally means testing and quarreling. Don't miss what the last verse says. It says, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's really the key to this whole set of stories. The people were not grumbling against Moses. They weren't grumbling against their circumstances. They were grumbling against God. They doubted God's care for them. That despite all they had seen, they doubted whether God was really among them or not. This was essentially a questioning of God's character. Remember, they knew that God had made a covenant with Abraham, their ancestor. They knew that they were God's chosen special people. But when the going got tough, they struggled to believe. They thought, will God continue to keep his promises? Is he still with us? And we'll see that this persistent doubt by the Israelites will lead to all sorts of issues throughout their history. And it's easy for us here today to look at these guys and think, man, these people are just foolish. (laughs) This is ridiculous. They just saw God turn a river to blood, part the sea, destroy their enemies, and they still don't get it. What is wrong with them? (laughs) How could they be like that? I mean, I would never act this way. Sure about that? (laughs) It's very easy for us to rag on the Israelites, but are we really that much better? I'm going to put you out in the desert for a couple days with no food, no water, and see what you say. (laughs) I know what I'd be saying. The reality is, in our sinful flesh, we all have times where we get in a tough situation. We're dealt a tough hand, and we doubt God. We forget who he is and what he's done for us. And just like Israel, rather than shame or condemn us, God patiently and graciously uses our circumstances to turn us back to him. So let me close by sharing with you from this story three ways that God uses our circumstances for our good. Here's the first. Number one, God uses our circumstances to refine us. To refine us. When God saves us, when when God saved you, his work in your life was just getting started. Salvation, being saved, that's not the finish line. Like That's the starting point. What comes next is what we call discipleship and growth, or what we use that big word sometimes to describe this process. It's called sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which you become more like Jesus. And there are a lot of ways that God sanctifies his people. He uses the local church, and we gather for worship and Sunday school and discipleship groups. He uses the spiritual disciplines as we spend time with him each day. He uses encouragement from others and even blessing. But one of God's greatest tools to grow us is trials and suffering. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon, famous pastor who suffered a lot himself. He said, I have derived more real benefit and permanent strength and growth in grace and every precious thing from the furnace of affliction than I have ever derived from prosperity. Stars may be seen from the bottom of a deep well when they cannot be discerned from the top of a mountain. So are many things learned in adversity, which the prosperous man dreams not of. Troubles like files take away our rust. Like furnaces, they consume our dross. 
Like winnowing fans, they drive away the chaff, and we would have but little usefulness if we had not been made to pass through the furnace. And in all our troubles, we have found the character of God a comfort, for the refiner is never very far from the mouth of the furnace when his gold is in the fire. Believers have for a long time used that image, that illustration of a refiner's fire purifying gold to describe the way God purifies his people. The things that the world sees as unlucky or tragic, God sees as opportunities to do his greatest work. So why 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised. Expect it. He says, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you, verse 13, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We see in those verses that word test again, the same word we saw with Israel and their thirst. God tests his people, not to see if we're legit or not, but he tests us to grow us and to stretch us and make us more like Jesus. Like that's his greatest desire for you. It's not to make you happy and healthy and comfortable. It's to make you holy like Jesus. And he will use whatever it takes to do that. I've told you before, I've seen this in my own life. It's the dark seasons of my life, the hard times, the painful moments where I look back and I see most clearly God's hand. Those are the times where I've grown the most. So next time you face an unexpected trial, don't run or hide, but lean in. And allow God to melt you down and purify you into the image of his son. God uses our circumstances to refine us. Here's the second thing we learn. Number two, God uses our circumstances to teach us. Second story, we saw with the manna served to teach Israel that God would not only provide for them in the big things, like getting them out of slavery, but he would also provide for them in the small things, like giving them food. He was a God who cared for every single detail of their lives, and he was a God who would provide for them no matter what. But they needed to learn that the hard way. I have to give you another quote by Charles Spurgeon. He compared Israel's time in the wilderness as as being like going to college. Listen to this. He said, Israel gained by education. The Lord was not going to lead a mob of slaves into Canaan to go and behave like slaves there. They had to be tutored. The wilderness was the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. There they went to the university and he taught and trained them. And they took their degree before they entered the promised land. There is no university for a Christian like that of sorrow and trial. God's greatest lessons come through seasons of suffering. There are some things we will never learn if our lives are nice and easy and comfortable and everything we ever dreamed of. We will never know God's comfort if we don't first know pain. We will never know God's peace if we don't first know chaos. We will never know God's hope if we don't first know despair. God uses our circumstances not to punish us. It's not like karma or fate. It's not bad luck or unfortunate timing. It's God revealing his character in our moments of greatest need. And the manna that Israel ate in the wilderness is a principle for us to understand God's grace and the way he works. Think about it. God did not give Israel the manna they needed for tomorrow. 
for tomorrow's hunger. He only gave them what they needed for today. So for them to sit around and worry, oh, man, what are we going to eat? What are we going to eat tomorrow? What if we starve? Are we going to have enough? That made no sense because they knew tomorrow's need would bring tomorrow's grace. This is what Jesus was getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 6, he said, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's a great definition of worry. Worry is trying to solve tomorrow's problems today. But when you try to solve tomorrow's problems, you do so without tomorrow's grace or manna. It hasn't hit the ground yet. And so in your mind, it's terrifying. Your heart races and your mind races and your blood pressure goes up and you're freaking out because you're imagining that situation, that horrible situation without the grace that will also come with it if it comes true. And no wonder it's so scary. You're trying to figure the problem out without God's help. Listen to me. Whatever tomorrow brings, God will give you the grace to get through it. If the worst thing you can imagine were to come true for you tomorrow, the manna will be on the ground right there with it. No more and no less. God will give you exactly what you need when you need it. God uses our circumstances to teach us to rely on him. And here's the last thing we learn, number three. God uses our circumstances to remind us. As I said from the get-go this morning, We need to be reminded. We are forgetful people. We all do this. We allow the immediate circumstances of life to cloud and overwhelm us. And we forget the things we know to be true in God's word. So God uses situations that we face to say, hey, don't forget about me. I'm here. I'm with you. I'm working in this. I'm going to take care of you. That's what we saw in the third story with the water from the rock. It's so interesting. God could have done this a lot of ways. He could have provided a bunch of natural springs like he just did in chapter 15. He could have brought water down from heaven. But no, he wanted to give them an image that they would never forget by bringing water out of a rock. Moses even gave that place a particular name so that every time they passed by, they would remember that moment. And this is the whole point. Of God's provision in these three stories. This is the point of the water and the bread and the rock. It's to remind people who God is and what he will do for them. And Jesus Christ picked up on these same stories to point us to himself. This is amazing. Listen to this in John chapter 6. Jesus just performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. He took a couple of fish and loaves of bread and fed 5,000 people. And the next day, that same crowd of people, they're still following him around, and, and they, they want Jesus to do more for them. They, they say this in John 6. They say, Jesus, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? He just fed them. They say, our fathers ate the men and, and man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, they said, Jesus, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
Jesus took these great stories from Exodus and he made clear that the manna in the wilderness and the water from the rock were signs pointing us to the bread of life and living water that comes only from him. And see, unlike the manna and the water that Israel received, what we have in Jesus will satisfy us forever. They needed more manna and more water every day for the rest of their lives. But what we have in Jesus will give us eternal life because of what he's done on our behalf. So what we have to do as we wander through our own wilderness today is to daily remind ourselves of the gospel, of what Jesus has done. We need to preach this message to ourselves. Did you know you can preach to yourself in your head? You're already doing it. You're just probably saying some other things like me. But we need to be intentional and find ways to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remind ourselves, to remember who Jesus is and what he's done, that he is our great provider, that he is the bread of life, that he has the living water. And because of what he did on the cross and at the empty grave for you, you have all you need. He is enough. So let's don't forget it. Let's remember and remember and remember again. Would you pray with me?